daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Chinese ambassador to the U.S. Xie Feng calls for stabilizing bilateral ties. Honduran President Xiomara Castro is set to make her first visit to China. China is to hold first nationwide village basketball tournament. Welcome to World Today, a news program with a different perspective. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, download our podcast by searching World Today. Chinese ambassador to the United States Xie Feng says stabilizing bilateral relations is compatible with upholding national interests. Addressing a welcome ceremony that the U.S.-China Business Council held for him, Xie Feng stressed the benefits of the two countries working together instead of against each other. Over 50 years ago, Chinese and American leaders put to an end the 22-year mutual estrangement in a spirit of finding common interests between countries with different social systems. They brought about good results for our two countries as well as the world. Today's China-U.S. relationship bears on not only the well-being of the 1.7 billion Chinese and American people, but also the world's future. By forestalling conflict and confrontation, and upholding a stable China-U.S. relationship. One is promoting the common interests for both countries and contributing to world peace and prosperity. Xie Feng arrived in the United States last month. He pledged to work with American people to promote exchanges between the two countries. Now for more, we're joined by Dr. Wang Huiyao. He is president of the Center for China and Globalization, a think tank based in Beijing. Thank you, Dr. Wang, for talking to us. Thank you. Now, first up, uh, Dr., the speech at the U.S.-China Business Council welcoming dinner is more like uh, Ambassador Xie Feng's first formal speech, you know, apart from the one that he made uh, at the New York airport. So upon reading the speech um, and watching it, how do you feel about the tone he has set for his tenure? Well, I think uh, Ambassador Xie has made a very clear uh, statement there that uh, stabilized uh, China-U.S. relation is crucial. And it's important, not only about 1.7 billion of the U.S.-China population, but also, I think, the whole world, because this is the most important bilateral relation. So I think Ambassador Xi emphasized that there's no need to really to decouple or de-risk to some extent. And actually, the two countries have a vital interest to work together for the sake of uh, not only for, for the both countries, but for the world peace and prosperity. So that is very, very important and should be really uh, thinking of the global picture uh, in mind and, uh, and also being the two largest economy. I, 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 you know, he really uh, you know, indicated that there's a moral responsibility for, for both countries to uh, look forward and to really stabilize. I think the key word is stabilize. Mm. You know, we, we've seen the free falling and deteriorating <laughs> Mm-hmm. For, for quite some time, though. so it's very important to stabilize that. Mm. Well, that certainly is a hope. Um, uh, like you said, and like Ambassador Xiefeng said, recently the U.S. side has expressed its intention, um, its non-intention, actually, to decouple with China, but some people uh, in America are using another word, which is de-risking. What does it really mean? Well, I think, you know, it's, it's probably a better word uh, uh, sound that uh, not too obvious, but so it's still ambiguous. I think that the risk can mean <laughs> uh, mm. m- many, many uh, meanings, and uh, it could be the risk of, uh, you know, uh, Russian Ukraine and, uh, uh, you know, a crisis going on. It could mean uh, diversification. It could mean so it's not very, uh, uh, very uh, obvious and, and cl- uh, clarified. So, so I think that, uh, uh, to my mind, actually, uh, the, the economic intertwine and economic integration. And uh, the economic prosperity that we've been joined in the last seven decades uh, since the Second World War is, is, is also a, a security issue. You know, we need to mm. really safeguard the prosperity and the stability of the world uh, at large, rather than we try to de-risk de- de- decouple from each other, and then really the world is divided. And that is really uh, the biggest risk I'm seeing, you know, mm. that the risk uh, to become a risk itself. So that really doesn't make, make a lot of sense. 
Well, Ambassador Xiefeng said in his speech that uh, you know, to some Chinese, to some people in China, the risk it, it does not you know deviate from decouple. The two actually mean the same thing. It's just a different word. What do you think? I I think he's right. I think that because mm. uh, it send send a negative uh, message anyway. And uh, mm. uh, uh, as I said, you know, we, we, we the, the working together, we stay together. That uh, uh, you know, maintain the multilateral order and maintain the free trade uh, environment is is probably the most important uh, security of our time. Uh, rather than we 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 decouple from that and we risk from that, because that is really the, the biggest risk if we divide it. If we really uh, Fighting against each other, or campanizing, or become different blocks of economy—that's probably the uh, it's the biggest risk of our time. That we're going to see the whole world economy is, uh, mm. is facing huge uh, risk. So, so in that sense, I think the risk is not really clarified. It's probably uh, uh, sounds a little better than what the couple, but 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 I don't think it substantially it has changed anything. Mm. It, you know, really, I think we need to. Uh, change that mentality and uh, work together. Uh, let's get really the win-win. Uh, as President Xi said, we we need to really uh, support each other and help each other, and then uh, you know uh, benefit the whole world. Well, Ambassador Xiefeng said uh, upholding one's own national interest is compatible with uh, stabilizing ties, uh, which is quite a mature attitude, um, Doctor Wang. Um, in your opinion, what do Americans think their national interest is regarding China at this stage? Is it still, you know, the traditional uh, trade and economic ties, where, uh, and also cultural and people-to-people exchanges, or is it more about, you know, uh, maintaining America's primacy and, you know, holding China down? That, that's true. I, I think exactly. You know that uh, uh, you know we. America has been uh, uh, designing and helping <laughs> implement mm. the multilateral global order, and uh, and has been really a, a big promoter of globalization. It's really sad to see that Americans now uh, is, is withdrawing from that and and trying to build uh, uh, high walls and and uh, and also fences uh, on, on those things uh, to really block other countries. I, I think that mentality really is hurting the the, the, the global economy and prosperity. Uh, as we said, when we're, we're living uh, in a modern era, with, uh, which is already uh, very prosperous and very much intertwined every every, every country together. Now we're we're totally different than 70, 80 years ago. So it's really, and also we are in, living in a, in a nuclear age. And it's not uh, foreseeable to to have a nuclear conflict. Mm. So we have to work together. We're facing pandemic and the climate change and all those uh, common threats. So it's it's not really making sense. So national interest should be really. Uh, you know, everybody should address its own challenges. Mm. Uh, you know, solve its domestic problems rather than blaming each other or blaming <laughs> have a scapegoating for, but own its own uh, uh, problems. Mm-hmm. So I think that that is really we need to really develop our own economy. I mean, I just see the World Bank has uh, increased the China's forecast to five point five percent. Yeah, 6%. and then the US, yeah, almost six percent, mm-hmm. and then and and the US is still one percent. So let's let's really work on the economy, and uh, and really uh, that's is really the most important national interest in each country. Mm-hmm. Well, talking about the economy, Xiefeng said China's economic growth uh, as well as policy consistency provide the world with valuable stability and much-needed certainty. So, uh, Dr. Wang, what do you, how do you think American business community are trying to take care of their uh, China market at the moment? Uh, do they still hold the same position, uh, let's say, compared to five or ten years ago? Well, I think there's certainly some adjustment, but 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 the logic is still there, you know, because mm-hmm. uh, this is the biggest market. We have a 500 millimeter class, and then it's the most the competitive market. And then you harness the best technology in this, uh, the best applications seen in the Chinese market, apply all the new technology. So the recent, uh, uh, you know, Goldman Sachs uh, and you know, big business meeting Elon Musk and and a parade of businessmen coming to China is a good indication that. Uh, you know, business people are pragmatic. They look for the long-term interest, and also this economic interest. The you know, commercial interest is also also a national security. It's for for all countries to have. You know, maintain mm-hmm. this, continue to maintain this kind of uh, closed uh, cooperation. So, so even artificially, people want to separate that, but it's, I think it's difficult because the, the commercial logic and business logic is is there for for hundreds of years. I think you know, common sense will prevail, and uh, I think the business will continue doing the business in China.
Mm. Well, uh, in the speech, Xie Feng also said uh, we need to find those who support U.S.-China relations and help them speak out, because you know these people in the past few years have、uh, remained somewhat silent. So, Doctor Wang, help us understand the background for these people to remain silent, and what do you think American policymakers, government officials, should do to encourage these people to speak out? You know, for the benefit of、uh, the improvement of bilateral relations. Yes, absolutely. I think those are very、really、important. I think you know the COVID、uh, three years of、uh, isolation and separation doesn't help.、Uh, but but now the thing has has completely changed. You no, know? it's、uh, reviving. We need to have more flights,、uh, more student exchanges, more tourism. I think the experts and all those、uh, China watchers and should really increase their visiting of each other and exchanges, track to dialogue, think tank uh, uh, exchanges. So all those things are really helping and.、Uh, We need to really invite a lot of、uh, foreigners, American particularly, to come to China and and, and see the believing. You know, China is still vibrant and uh, very, uh, uh, you know,、uh, you know, vibrant, and this is a huge market, and、uh, that's really uh, attractive uh, still to them. So, so, so I think you know that thing probably will gradually improve, and we need to、uh, welcome more U.S. students coming to China. Uh, that's also important, and of course, we need to have a high-level visit of each other、mm-hmm. and、uh, to 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 continue the dialogue. And to promote understanding, so those things are all important. We already see a lot of European leaders coming. We see an improvement of the relation and standing. We should do the same with Americans, and we should, you know, continue our high-level dialogues and our, our, you know, further. Promoting the bilateral relations.、Mm. Well, Dr. Wang,、um, you know, anti-China rhetoric has become uh, somewhat uh, a bi- bi- bipartisan,、um, you know, rhetoric in Washington over the past、mm-hmm. few years, especially yes, after、yeah. you know the toxic times of、uh, Donald Trump. Do you think the Biden government is doing enough, you know, to really get、uh, things straight and really、uh, encourage these people to 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 encourage people who want to improve the relations to be, speak out? I, I think you know, Biden administration probably is trying, but、uh, but I think the team should should catch up. I think that you know we should really realize the, the summit of uh, uh, in Bali,、uh, President Xi and President Biden reached a common understanding. And, and the working team should、uh, really implement that. We, we have to see that、uh, really put into concrete uh, uh, actions and, and deeds. You know, we, do, we not only need words, but we need the deeds. So I think, importantly,、uh, you know, we have so many little windows left.、Uh, we need to really work hard to improve the relation.、Mm. I think that's really important. Thank you. That was Dr. Wang Huiyao. He is president of the Center for China and Globalization, a think tank based in Beijing. Coming up, we'll take a look at、uh, Honduran president's upcoming visit to Beijing. You're listening to World Today. Stay with us. Humanity has declared a war against plastic waste, introducing various bans on single-use plastic products. But so far, the results seem to be far from being satisfactory. Why is that? As the UN Environment Programme renews the campaign to eradicate plastic pollution, what could be the key to victory? We try to answer some of these and others on this week's chat lounge on your favorite podcast platform, and right here on CGTN Radio. Welcome back to World Today. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. Honduran President Sumara Castro is getting ready for a visit to China that begins on Friday. It's the first visit after the two countries established diplomatic ties earlier this year. China has opened its embassy in the Central American country. Alastair Beverstock reports on the new partnership. Honduras established formal diplomatic ties with Beijing in March, and just this week, China inaugurated its new embassy here in the capital. Now, this Central American nation is looking towards closer cross-Pacific ties. The inauguration ceremony saw officials from both nations celebrate in what economists here are calling a key moment for future progress. Twenty-first century must be a period of unity for humanity, and the immense majority of Hondurans supports this decision of opening our relations up with China. 
because it also opens up our hopes for better future. Honduras is also getting an embassy in Beijing, appointing renowned medical science researcher Salvador Enrique Moncada as the country's first ambassador to China. As a former Honduran ambassador himself, Efrain Diaz says the ambassadorial nomination can greatly deepen the country's relationship. It was a very wise appointment given the long scientific career Dr. Moncada has had. And the opening of the embassy is a very clear sign that our diplomatic relations are moving in the right direction for both nations' interests in different areas, political, economic, cooperation and investment. However, as a country struggling with high rates of poverty and external migration, this Central American country hopes to learn from its new cross-Pacific partner. How can our country's developing economy leap to being stronger when it comes to manufacture? China's contribution can be very important here because of its own experience in the transformation it has undergone over the past 25 years. As Honduras embarks on a new era of relations with China, this country says it hopes to learn and benefit from its deepening ties to Asia. Well, for more on this, we're joined by Jiang Shixue, his professor and director of the Center for Latin American Studies, Shanghai University. Thank you, Professor Jiang, for talking to us again. Okay, thank you. Now, Professor, we know Honduras is a country located in the Caribbean, but tell us more about it, you know, its economy, development, etc. Well, uh, Honduras is a small country Mm. uh, in Latin America. Uh, in terms of Central America, well, uh, it's not uh, very small. Uh, mm. uh, when I when I hear uh, uh, this country, Honduras, my first impression would be a kind of uh, problems, mm. uh, lower economic development and uh, violence, and also uh, big. A migration uh, movement from uh, from Honduras to the U.S. You know, a few years ago, uh, there was a big uh, news story about uh, uh, people uh, walking on their feet mm. uh, from their home to the U.S. Uh, so uh, this is a country where because uh, uh, because we didn't have a diplomatic relationship, uh, so. Uh, so, so the Chinese media didn't uh, pay much attention to mm. to this uh, tiny country. Mm. Oh, perhaps we we definitely need uh, to know more about it. Well, uh, as we heard earlier, China and Honduras established a formal diplomatic relations in March this year after the latter cut ties with China's Taiwan region. So, how important is China to Honduras, uh, and vice versa? You know, China is the second biggest economy. So, so when you when you want to uh, have a so-called external economic relationship with the outside world, so China would be one of the best choices. Okay, mm. uh, China would uh, make more investment, and China can uh, buy products from uh, this uh, tiny Central American country. You know, uh, Honduras um, is is not well developed in terms of its economy. Its uh, per capita GDP uh, is somewhat uh, four thousand U.S. dollars or so. So I believe that in the future, uh, Honduras will, uh, will benefit greatly from uh, attracting Chinese investment. And uh, also um, expanding its uh, uh, market in China, mm. so that would be a great potential for future cooperation between the two sides. Mm. What about uh, Professor in areas of cultural and people-to-people exchanges? How do you think the two can work with each other? Uh, yes, Honduras' culture is quite uh, quite unique uh, uh, to the Chinese uh, tourists. Uh, so I hope that uh, in the near future, uh, uh, both sides uh, will will figure out ways to uh, to uh, to promote tourism 
And I believe that uh, people from Honduras also want to visit China, and the Chinese tourists uh, can uh, enjoy a very uh, exotic culture of this uh, Central American country. Uh, apart from tourism, I think uh, we can have uh, other kinds of uh, cooperation in the cultural and the people-to-people exchange uh, areas. Uh, the scholars from both sides can uh, meet and discuss all kinds of issues. And uh, even in the scientific uh, and the technological areas, I think uh, some of the technologies uh, can be uh, transferred uh, to Honduras from China. Mm. Uh, well, I think uh, there were things we have now diplomatic relationship. So there will be more and more areas of cooperation. Mm. Well, um, Professor, this marks, uh, you know, Sumara Castro, the uh, Honduran president's first visit to China. What is she? He will, she will be here for a few days. So what issues do you think will top her agenda, her agenda while she's here? Uh, president, president Castro was the first lady of Honduras a few years ago. And now she is the first uh, uh, for, uh, female president, uh, first female president from this Central American country. Uh, so, uh, as far as I know, people in Honduras are going to see what will happen when she uh, arrives in China, and the people over there are expecting that there will be uh, more fruits of cooperation uh, from her trip. Definitely, uh, the high-level exchange uh, of visits uh, will further strengthen um, uh, uh, political consensus as well as uh, uh, trying trying to figure out uh, where areas of cooperation uh, look at uh, the, uh, the so-called great potential uh, of cooperation. Uh, well, until now, I'm not sure whether uh, Honduras will uh, sign the uh, MOU uh, agreement for Belt Road. Mm. But anyway, I think um, there will be uh, more opportunities. I think uh, China is going to make more investment, definitely. And mm. China uh, is going to uh, import uh, more coffee from Honduras. You mm. know, uh, coffee from uh, Brazil, Colombia, as well as Central America are very nice. Mm. Uh, I hope that uh, uh, Chinese um, people will enjoy high-quality coffee. Mm. Certainly, that's very good news for Chinese consumers. Now, uh, Professor, as I said earlier, um, you know, China and Honduras established relations after Honduras cut ties with China's Taiwan region. Now, how do you think, uh, you know, um, Honduras establishing diplomatic ties with China will influence uh, opinion in the international community regarding the one China principle? Uh, if uh, my memory is good, uh, I think uh, there are now 13 countries yes. in the world mm. uh, which recognize the so-called Taiwan. Mm. And uh, out of the 13, there are seven from uh, the Western Hemisphere. Uh, and uh, the only one in South America is called Paraguay. And the other six are located in Central America and the Caribbean. And uh, in Central America, per se, that now there are only two countries, Guatemala and Belize. So I think uh, Honduras will will have some kind of uh, uh, very, uh, how would you say, uh, 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 will set a, a very good example for Guatemala and Belize to consider whether or not right. uh, they're going to accept the international consensus that when China principle. Mm, well, uh, I, uh, soon or late, I believe they will mm, uh, they will shift from Taiwan mm, to the well, mainland. Well, keep an eye on you know the upcoming visit by the Honduran president. But thank you. That was Professor Jiang Shixue from uh, Shanghai University. You're listening to World Today. After the break, we'll take a look at U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken's visit to Saudi Arabia. Stay with us.
welcome. I'm Ilaf Ellard, economics professor and member of the Data Science and AI Center at New York University, Shanghai. On the World Today program, you can find in-depth and impartial insight, as well as critical commentary on key trends in the Chinese economy, financial technology, business, and blockchain. To prepare for the world tomorrow, join me on World Today. Welcome back to the show. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken has met with Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman in Jeddah. In a statement, U.S. State Department spokesperson said during the meeting, the two sides "quote unquote" affirmed their shared commitment to advance stability, security, and prosperity across the Middle East and beyond. A U.S. official said the conversation was open and candid. The much-anticipated visit comes amid frayed ties due to deepening disagreements on everything from Iran policy to regional security issues, oil prices, among others. Now, for more, we're joined by Greg Barton. He's professor of global Islamic politics at Deakin University in Australia. Thank you, Professor Barton, for joining us. It's good to have you back on the show. Back to back on the show. Thanks very much. Now, Professor, what is uh? In your observation, what is the main mission by Blink of Blinken to visit Saudi and attend the GCC summit? Well, the main mission is to shore up a very important relationship.、Um, Saudi Arabia is a, a vitally important state in the Middle East, and its stable engagement with its neighbours and its influence over its neighbours makes a big difference. But there are a number of, of threads to this. There's Uh, bringing to an end the war in Yemen,、uh, which Saudi Arabia has been brokering a peace. Saudi Arabia's、um, re- return to sort of normalising relations with Iran, so that there's a negotiated、uh, conversation going on there, rather than a, a kind of a cold war.、Um, Blinken is looking to Saudi Arabia for help in trying to avert civil war in Sudan. There's the problem of high oil prices, and of course Saudi Arabia is the main exporter of oil. There's、uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine and concerns about、uh, Russian influence across the Middle East.、Uh, so there's a whole bunch of, of things. That,、uh, Saudi Arabia just plays such an important role that, even though it's a difficult relationship, Lincoln、uh, clearly has put a lot of work into、mm. trying to. Restore what was what was a rather fractured、uh, relationship. Well, certainly, it looks like there's a lot on his plate. Now,、uh, is Blinken achieving what he wants? From- yeah, the, the signs actually are that、um, this is is working. It's it's difficult.、Um, there's no、uh, moments of of triumph here, but it looks like sort of a steadily improving relationship with Saudi Arabia, and and that、um, the relationship is. I think stronger now than it was 12 months ago or 24 months ago.、Mm. Now,、um, Professor, what、uh, what do you think at the moment are the core issues that you know sit at the soured、uh, U.S.-Saudi relations? I mean,、uh, there are so many difficult issues that you just mentioned, but which ones are more important? Which are which ones are the fundamental ones? I, I think the fundamental question is Mohammed bin Salman, the Crown Prince and the effective ruler, and, and Possibly long-time, you know, or into the future of Saudi Arabia. When、um, Mohammed bin Salman came to power as a relatively young leader,、mm. there were hopes that he would be very progressive and open Saudi Arabia up. And in many ways, he's done that. I mean, Saudi Arabia is changing its culture; it's opening up.、Um, it, it's becoming less of a cloistered society. But it's been soured by human rights abuses. So the、um, the death of the journalist、uh, Kamal Khashoggi. Really、uh, made that relationship with, with the entire world, including particularly the U.S., where、uh, Jamal Khashoggi was a was a resident. That, that, that really made it a very difficult relationship. So the question is: Will MBS, as he's known, Mohammed bin Salman, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, will he move in the direction of a more open society? Will he free political prisoners? Will he continue to encourage、uh, moderation and transformation? Or will he, he hang on to some elements of,、um, of authoritarian power in a way that、uh, is very uncomfortable for the U.S. and, and, and many other countries?、Mm. The hope is that by opening up this relationship with the U.S., it moves things in a positive direction. So, no. Mm. You know, nothing's perfect in politics. Politics is the art of the possible, and including international politics. Well, Professor, as as you mentioned, you know, Saudi Crown Prince,、uh, 
you know, receives a lot of attention, uh, not only in the politics circle, but also around the world in the international media. So uh, in your opinion and observation, how what's his vision for his country in terms of uh, international policies? And, you know, where does the United States stand in that picture? Well, you know, despite all the things I've been saying, there's a lot of common interest. I mean, the, the, the statement out of the visit was um, shared prosperity and peace in, in the greater Middle East. And, and I think that there's no question Saudi Arabia and, and the U.S. want that. You know, one of the elements there is a, a normalizing of relations with Israel, along with normalizing relations with Iran. That has the potential to bring about structural change. The, the vision that MBS has, well, many aspects of it are, Elements that America supports: so opening Saudi Arabia, moving beyond the, the petro uh, economy to um, a more open society that uh, encourages more space for citizens, particularly for women. Education, women is a key, a key area of the transformation in Saudi Arabia. All of that stuff is good. Um, the problem is that there's been such a cloud over questions of human rights along the way. The hope now is that by continuing this process of um, a stronger relationship between the U.S. And, and Saudi Arabia. It encourages political moderation within Saudi Arabia. Um, and, and potentially um, that's something that MBS will accept as being a, a fair trade-off that you will have mm. to wait and see. We can't tell this year. Maybe next year it'll become a bit clearer. Mm. Well, let's take a look at the U.S. side, because um, some experts have argued that for the Biden administration, the more the priority is in Asia, especially, you know, rivalry with China. Uh, and we have seen, you know, the U.S. withdrawn from uh, a lot of his forces from the uh, Middle East, uh, especially we've seen, you know, the Afghanistan debacle. So. What have been the changes regarding Biden's uh, Middle East policy? What uh, is the main aim, let's say, of their government now? I think the main aim is to try and defuse um, cold, cold war sort of tensions I mean, sort of simmering conflicts, which results in proxy conflicts. So the big tension rivalry between Saudi Arabia and Iran led to a series of proxy conflicts that played into the war in Yemen, which is an important part of current negotiations to bring that war to an end. Um, China played a really important role in, in helping uh, facilitate improved relations between um, Saudi Arabia and Iran. It came at a time when things had moved a long way, but the role that China played has been very positive. Mm. And I, I think this can, you know, if you're an optimist, say this is this shows what's possible with diplomacy, that if you focus on building relationships and focus on what's positive and, and where you've got common interest you can gradually strengthen relations so that, you know, the hope, uh, I think, for the entire planet is that we go into the next few decades avoiding any serious conflict and war uh, and and improve relations, improve understanding and cooperation. Mm. So what happens in the Middle East is part of that larger whole. Um, mm. uh, there's lots of details that are concerning, but that, that general move towards open relations, whether it's between Saudi Arabia and Iran or between Saudi Arabia and Israel is better than having these um, closed uh, hostilities that that, um, result in tensions coming out in proxy conflicts and unresolved issues. Well, so well said. Going into the next few centuries, avoiding conflict or war. Thank you, Professor. That was uh, Professor Greg Barton, Professor of Global Islamic Politics at Deakin University in Australia. This is World Today. We'll be right back. Hello, my name is Alessandro Golombievski Teixeira. I'm a professor of public policy management at Tsinghua University in Beijing. I am a great listener of The World Today. In my opinion, The World Today is one of the best China radio programs. In The World Today, we can get the best news and analysis in what is happening now in the world. So please, come to join us. Welcome back to the show. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. A new poll shows most Europeans think the continent should reduce its military dependence on the United States and invest in its own defensive capabilities. The report released by the European Council on Foreign Relations shows nearly three-quarters of the 6,000 European respondents from 11 countries want the EU to remain neutral in any conflict between the United States and China, including the Taiwan question. 
Meanwhile, 43% of Europeans view China as a necessary partner, while 35% see Beijing as a rival to their country. The poll results are in line with recent statements made by French President Emmanuel Macron, saying that Europe should resist becoming America's followers. Now, for more on this, my colleague Xu Yawen earlier spoke with Dr. George Zagopoulos, director of EU-China programs and senior research fellow at European Institute of Nice. Professor Zagopoulos, as high as seventy-four percent of respondents said in the poll that the EU should take steps towards securing its own defense strategy rather than relying on the U.S., how do you reflect on the will of the people in Europe? I think that the results of the survey reflect the general tendency in the European Union, which is that most citizens、uh, believe that Europe、uh, should act、uh, in a way that will be kind of autonomous、uh, in the international arena. This is what、uh, the recent、uh, poll is suggesting, because for the majority of the Europeans,、mm-hmm. uh, what matters is. Stability and economic prosperity, and for this to happen, Europe needs to have an autonomous foreign and economic policy. So another figure shows that about forty-three percent, on average, saying they thought of China as a necessary partner. Would you say that European people were more in favor of China than are more of the bloc's leaders? Well, I would say that most people in Europe consider China a country with. Is a useful and necessary partner in safeguarding stability and peace in the international system. And from the moment China's role towards this direction is critical, cooperation with China is important despite the differences. So this is the general mood in the European Union. It does not mean that disagreements do not exist, but it means that cooperation is still possible. Mm. Another thing I think is worth to mention is that after the report was released, the co-author said during the interview that the EU has been sharpened by the Ukraine crisis and the growing tensions between the U.S. and China, and this could be a defining moment and its prospects of shifting away from its dependence on the U.S. towards its own foreign policy. So, what's your observation on this statement? Well, indeed, the conflict in Ukraine is a deep shock for the European Union and for most Europeans. And this conflict is going on, and we do not know when and how this conflict will end. So, on this basis, obviously, the European Union has come closer to the United States, but at the same time, most Europeans still value peace and prosperity. And in that regard, what matters is to find solutions. We can secure stability in the international system, and this is why China is somehow regarded as a partner in order for this goal to be achieved.、Mm. Um, it's also interesting to note most Europeans want their country to stay out of any possible conflict between the U.S. and China and remain neutral, including the Taiwan question. Actually, this is in line with recent remarks made by French President Emmanuel Macron on the topic. So, how does the EU stance on Sino-U.S. conflict reflect the attitude of other countries in the global community? Starkly, most European countries are peace-loving countries, and we have seen that throughout history. For example, when the war in Iraq broke out in 2003. The core of Europe, meaning France and Germany, had not supported the American intervention in Iraq. So this is the general philosophy and the trend,、uh, as far as、uh, the stance of European politicians and as far as the、uh, attitude of most European citizens is concerned. And this is because of history and the lessons of history. So this is an important element that needs to be taken into account. Now, as far as Sino-American competition is concerned, again, most Europeans and European policymakers value stability. This is what matters for Europe, because if stability is guaranteed or if stability is collapsing, then a plethora of problems are occurring, among other things, as far as trade and the economy are concerned. 
And mm. that is because most Europeans value stability in Sino-American relations because this is what can guarantee peace and prosperity for the world. Mm-hmm. Another figure in a poll shows that about 56% of respondents said the re-election of Mr. Donald Trump would weaken transatlantic relations. So what's your observation on that? Well, there is again uh, an element of experience in that regard. Uh, Donald Trump was the president of uh, the United States for four years. And during his presidency, transatlantic relations had uh, reached a very low point. So this experience is now uh, echoing on this uh, survey as far as predictions of European citizens about a potential victory of Donald Trump in the presidential election of 2024 is uh, concerned. That is to say that possibly, again, Donald Trump will not value the role of the European Union in the international system. Mm. European policymakers are aware of this, and European citizens obviously do not want this to happen. Mm-hmm, I see. And lastly, Professor Zugopoulos, we know the European Union has been a traditional ally of the U.S. and now with the bloc want to keep distance from the U.S. Will that be the future trend? And in your observation, what's the future prospects of EU's relations with the U.S. and China? Well, here the strategic autonomy concept is very relevant. So the European Union wants to act autonomously in order to guarantee its interests. And these interests are strategic interests, economic interests, as well as defense interests. Obviously, transatlantic relations can be strong, but this does not mean that the European Union will always agree with the United States. And as you correctly asked before, the new status of transatlantic relations will depend on the election of uh, the new American president in 2024. Because if Mr. Trump comes back to power, then obviously transatlantic relations will suffer. Otherwise, transatlantic relations will be stable. But again, this does not mean that Brussels and Washington are always on the same page. That was Dr. George Zugopoulos, Director of EU-China Programs and Senior Research Fellow at European Institute of Nice, speaking with my colleague Xu Yawen. You're listening to World Today. Stay with us. Hello, I am Dr. Digby James Wren, a political analyst and international relations scholar specializing in China area studies. World Today offers unmatched in-depth perspectives on China's politics, economics, business, technology and society. World Today's team of reporters and contributors provides valuable information from all of the world's major economies. I hope you can join me on World Today for the very best insights and news from China, on China and help to build a better understanding of China's role in the world today. Hi, I'm Einar Tangen, a political and economic analyst and senior fellow at the independent Taihur Institute. World Today is news without the hype and business commentary that is informed and up to date, presenting the facts and asking incisive questions. So join us if you are someone who needs to know what is happening in China as it is happening. Welcome back to the show. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. China's hottest grassroots basketball game is going to expand to villages nationwide. China's Ministry of Agriculture and Rural Affairs and the General Administration of Sport announced on Wednesday that the country's first village basketball competition will be held starting from June. Originated in Taipan Village of southwest China's Guizhou province, grassroots basketball tournaments have become a phenomenon since last year, being held by audiences as village basketball associations. The game has attracted more than 100 million online views. Now for more, we are joined by Dr. Yao Shujie. He is Changkang Professor of Economics at Chongqing University in Southwest China. Uh, thank you, Professor Yao, for talking to us. It's great to have you back on the show. Hi. Uh, so, Professor, uh, we know that, you know, Taipan Village's uh, village basketball tournament went viral after, you know, being covered by mainstream media in China. Um, I'm sure you watched the game from online uh, for some time. So how would you explain the popularity? I mean, it, it is certainly um, interesting, but uh, why do you think people like watching the game it's, uh, either in per- person or through online streaming? 
Well, basketball is a very popular, um, you know, sport game in China, not only in the urban area, but it used to be in the in the countryside as well, even uh, before the economy reform. Mm. But to have this national tournament, uh, particularly holding in Guizhou province, I think it signified the importance of the rural support uh, because of when people in the village, they become relatively well off mm. and up to the uh, poverty have been eradicated, people are looking for a better life. And uh, you know, sport is one dimension of how people can improve their likelihood. Mm. Uh, entertainment, but also participation by the uh, by the peasants, as well as the view by the people who not only living in the countryside, but people like me who have a connection for mm. uh, in the in the rural area. So it it is a it is a something uh, quite different uh, from the urban city uh, in a basketball game mm. because it is more, in my view, it's more directly rooted. Uh, in the real place, in the countryside, yeah. Mm. It's it's interesting that, you know, some of the top prizes uh, of the games were ships or fish, you know, captured locally. Uh, so what what about, what's special about Guizhou province? We understand that, you know, the basketball game actually started uh, originating uh, when, you know, farmers gather together during harvesting time. Uh, and they try to st- uh, play basketball. But why did village basketball tournament started in this uh, southwest uh, mountainous province in China? Yeah, Guizhou province used to be uh, a province with, you know, relatively lagged behind mm. by the coastal provinces and the more uh, economy developed areas uh, in other parts of the country. But I think since this century, I think Guizhou province have been doing very well not only in, in the Guizhou uh, urban area, but also in the countryside because of the central government support and also uh, the modern transportation uh, facility it is uh, you know, built up uh, in Guizhou province and thanks to the uh, industrial uh, transformation uh, from uh, agrarian society to a more prosperous industrialized economy in Guizhou province. Mm-hmm. And people, they, uh, you know, locally when they in the harvest time, uh, they are in the past they were very little or limited, you know, entertainment activity. Mm-hmm. And basketball is probably one of the easiest, uh, you know, sport in the village because it doesn't actually require a lot of place. It just <laughs> requires right. basketball, yeah, yeah, court, and people can play. And secondly, basketball is some sort of support which can have a maximum exercise mm-hmm. uh, human body, uh, whether it is male or, or female. Uh, and because working in the village, in particularly in the paddy field after the harvest, people mm-hmm. feel fully tired, so they need some cheer up, mm-hmm. not only uh, mm-hmm. for the people who are engaging in the sport, but also people can watch. And, and and get some sort of uh, amusement and entertainment to mm. enrich their life mm. in the village. And once the uh, you know the, the the economy is more open, uh, Guizhou is more integrated with the rest of the country. In the countryside, in the in the peasantry, they are getting uh, more and more uh, engaging in off-farm activity as well as other you know uh, services in the village. I think they have more time and more uh, energy and, and economy-wise, they have more money to spare. Mm. So <laughs> this is why it become a very attractive sport for mm. uh, not only the local people, but also uh, some other people online. Mm. Yeah. Well, uh, Professor, as you mentioned earlier, China's rural area has have, uh, gone through rapid uh, transformations over the past few decades, and China has eradicated uh, absolute poverty, especially in rural areas of the country. So now, with villagers moving to seek a better life, uh, what does a sport mean you know, in their daily life? Well, support can add some sort of flavor. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and so so add some sort of uh, color uh, to the likelihood of the, the 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 life in the village used to be a little bit arduous and also boring. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
Now, uh, as people get more prosperous, they are seeking ways uh, to entertain themselves, to be, make their life more colorful and also more uh, in a creative. And support is, a, is one of the many uh, activity or dimension that can be uh, infiltrated into the village to make the village more, uh, you know, more, more active mm. and more connected with the modern uh, part of the society. So uh, not only, but not only the sports, there are many other things as well. Mm. On you know, in television, uh, <laughs> also on online, you know, uh, entertainment and so. On. Mm. But uh, you know, sports, particularly basketball, as I say, is easy to play. Mm. It's very easy to get a big team and some uh, close relative to uh, work together, and they have a more attraction and more. Uh, impact on mm. a wide population. Yeah. Mm. Well, uh, then, Professor, this uh, originated in a small village in Guizhou, and then it became so popular around, you know, the whole country that now two of China's, you know, national departments try to are trying to hold a nationwide game, the, the Ministry of Agriculture and Rural Affairs, as well as the Sports Authority. So why do you think uh, they are trying to hold this nationwide game? Uh, what is uh, the main aim? Well, there are two purposes in my view. Uh, the first, the first aim is to uh, make the rural society more uh, attractive and mm-hmm. making making sure that the peasantry, uh, people living in a village, they have something you know that is uh, highly interesting and and good for health. And the second thing, I think, uh, the vitalization of the, the countryside in China after the eradication of the absolute poverty. Mm. The central and regional government, they are very keen to make sure that the rural area will continue to grow, mm. uh, will continue to contribute to the prosperity of the national economy. And the prosperity of the national economy may com- comprise quite a few elements. The first element is that uh, not only the agricultural production of farm activity in the village, they are able to maintain and, and increase the living standard of the rural people. Mm. But, uh, you know, sport as a kind of culture and sport event can also contribute to economic mm. uh, development because uh, it can attract viewers, as you just mentioned. Uh, the national game actually attracted 100 million viewers. They can, <laughs> mm. uh, you know, can improve the the revenue right. uh, of, of the television mm. and also the local people, and, and as even, well as you know tourism and quite a lot of other things. Well, yeah, Professor, the, we're running out of time, but thank you for joining us. That was Dr. Yao Shujie with Chongqing University. That's all the time we have for this edition of World Today. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous discussions, find our podcast by searching World Today. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. Thank you for staying with us. Bye for now.